again. Again, my name is Marshall. See, it's getting full in here. I'll do my part to thin it out. I'll preach on money. (laughs) Would you pray with me as we look to do that? Our great God, uh, we come now to hear your word teached and uh, preached and taught, and I pray that you would be with us, all of us, both uh, myself as I teach, but also for all of us who hear, and especially when we come to this sensitive subject of money, something that we guard so desperately, so privately, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what your word has to say to us. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I actually want you to take your bulletin uh, and flip to the back cover. So this is the front cover. I want you to flip to the back cover. There is a map on the back cover of your bulletin. It is a map of Northwestern University and of a residence, 638 Garrett Place, which is about a tenth of a mile, as you can see from Northwestern's campus. Five years ago, when Chris Colquitt and his wife Kristen moved with their growing family to the North Shore to start their work with RUF, our college ministry on the campus of Northwestern, uh, they were able to buy a beautiful home, a beautiful home, uh, a mere sand wedge from Northwestern's campus at 638 Garrett. And for the last five years, their home has been a heartbeat of the ministry to the Northwestern students as they have reached students for Christ and equipped those students uh, to serve Jesus and his church. If it were not spring break, all these benches would be filled with Northwestern students, and I would ask those Northwestern students to raise your hand uh, if you have been in the Colquitt home for a Bible study for a meal or to be counseled. And I'm guessing that most, if not all, of those students who are there probably somewhere fun right now in the sun uh, or on a ski slope, Uh, they would raise their hands and say, yes, we have been in 638 Garrett. Well, in mid-January, when Chris, uh, sad for us, very exciting for them, accepted the call to be the pastor, the senior pastor of Trinity Presbyterian in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, we will miss them, we will celebrate them. He will preach his uh, final sermon to us, or at least his final sermon while he lives here. Uh, I'll get him back. Um, He and I had a conversation that we'd actually started uh, well before this. I wonder if there's a way that we could figure out how we could buy, the church could buy 638 Garrett from the Colquitts. Properties like this, so close to a major research university that has tentacles all over the world, properties like this come around once in a generation at best. Because of timing, they needed to sell the house. They needed the money to take with them to Virginia. We did not have time to mount a campaign. Uh, We looked at different models of doing it. Could RUF buy it? The answer was no. What if we put a group of investors together, an LLC, and that was not going to work? It was going to be too complicated. What we came up with was the best way was for Grace, our church, to own that property. But I decided, we decided because of the needs of Grace for our own properties and our own improvement and expansion, I did not want to tap our balance sheet for the down payment or the members of Grace. I wanted all the external money initially to come from external sources. Uh, We will finance, uh, Grace will assume the mortgage. Uh, So what I did is I sent a couple of emails, not many emails. I had, I think it was three phone conversations, maybe four. And almost overnight, we raised close to $300,000 from external sources. This is a group of less than a dozen donors 
most of whom I never spoke to, several of whom I've never met and will probably never meet. Somebody forwarded the email to others who gave. They got the email. They decided this was a commitment worth making. They got the vision. They saw the, they saw the map. They saw what made sense. And they made a commitment, some of them very significantly. And this week we signed a contract and will hopefully own, if everything goes well, uh, sure it will, 638 Garrett by May. Our initial plans for the property are to rent the property to Ian and Hannah Hammond and their family. Uh, you may know Ian. They're not here this week. Uh, this Sunday, uh, but Ian works with RUF International, which means the house will be used even more so for ministry. The ministry to international students, graduate students, is even more of a hospitality-based ministry than ministry to undergraduates. Uh, you may know that when students come from around the world, many of them come from more communal and hospital environments than American, and most international students never set foot in an American home. And so Ian and Hannah make it a part of their ministry uh, to welcome students into their home. And this will be their chance to move into a home much closer to the campus to welcome those students from around the world and expose them to Jesus. In the future, this home might be a parsonage for a pastor, for a church planter. It might be a Christian study center. Um, and if Christians or Christian groups are ever disallowed from the campus of Northwestern, which is, of course, quite feasible this day and age, this could be a meeting place mere steps from Northwestern's campus. We don't know what the future holds. I think it is significantly possible that 40 and 50 years from now, students will be studying the Bible and encountering Jesus at 638 Garrett. And this all, and of course the finance committee in the session uh, have been involved with this, and we will assume, again, the risks and the benefits of the mortgage. Uh, but all of the funding is external to grace. A group of people who don't know each other, who do not live here, who are getting no equity in the deal, who have never seen and may never see 638 Garrett, most of whom will never meet the beneficiaries, they gave. They gave. Overnight, I might add. We had to do it quickly. Why? Why would they do this? At some level, people give like this because they see themselves as stewards, as managers of what God has given to them. And so they hear a need for God's kingdom and they respond. The definition of a steward is using God-given resources using God-given resources to accomplish God-given goals. And so it is, I believe, with 638 Garrett. Now, if you've been with us, we've been studying the Ten Commandments. And the series title is Learning to Live by Grace. And this week we come to the Eighth Commandment, Thou shall not steal. You shall not steal. And it seems rather straightforward. Don't steal. And if you're inclined to steal, or if you have stolen something and you need to confess, please see Nick Swan. That's, that's his joke, okay? But I got to use it. Don't steal. It seems simple, though. But if you scratch the surface, you realize this is a deep and cutting command. First of all, because to talk about stealing presupposes some concept of property. Peter Lightheart's a theologian I like a lot. He says this, what we are weirdly includes what we have. What we are weirdly includes the things that we possess. You see, to own something, 
This is so weird. But to own something is somehow to incorporate it into our personality. My in-laws graciously gave me a nice car. It's 17 years old, but it's a Lexus. And I'd never driven a Lexus before. Uh, and so when I finally got this car, this Lexus, and started driving, I got to be honest, this is embarrassing to admit, it felt pretty good, you know? You know, I got, I'm the kind of guy who drives a Lexus. That's what I thought to myself. Why? Because there's a certain logo on my car? But we do this, don't we? What we have, we incorporate into who we are. It says something about us somehow. We do this with our homes. We do this with our degrees, the places we earn, our, our, our institutions we earn our degrees from. We do it with our clothes. We do it. And one thing I love about the North Shore is the logos on our golf shirts. All the places we've played golf <laughs> that we kind of parade around. Uh, it's that supposed to say something about us. And because our relationship to property is complicated, our relationship to stealing is complicated. Let me give you a historical example. In the Roman Empire, think about this. In the Roman Empire, it was you know, death by, you were, you were a crook, a, a, a common thief. The penalty for being a common thief was death. The penalty for a common thief was death. And yet at the exact same time that that was, successful politicians were awarded distant provinces where they could plunder for their own personal advantage. So you can steal on a massive scale, but if you steal a little bit, we're going to kill you. You see, we hear no stealing and we think a cat burglar or we think Bernie Madoff. We don't think shading our taxes, padding an expense report or withholding credit from a colleague. And yet all of that is absolutely in view. You see, at the heart of every thief, at the heart of every thief, the heart of all of us, is I deserve this. I am owed this. And we, if you're honest, we all feel that. So money and property, they're not only complicated, they're extremely important. This is the reason, interesting, think about this, Jesus talks more about money and possessions than he does heaven or prayer. Think about that. Jesus talks more about money and possessions than he does about heaven or prayer. And then I never really thought about this till this week. It is Jesus' teaching and actions specifically regarding money that initially, that get, that get him killed. Follow me. The temple complex in Jerusalem was a massive money-making machine. There were charges for offering. There were exchange rates for people traveling so that they could pay for their sacrifice. And the temple economy made the religious leaders very wealthy. So in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus goes into the temple to drive out the money changers and flip the tables over, Jesus goes in with a cord and he just basically cleans, they call it the cleansing of the temple. He flips over the furniture literally. This is what Jesus says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of what? Robbers. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And what is the very next verse? The very next verse after Jesus cleanses the temple? The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Jesus moves their cheese when it comes to their money, their income. He calls them thieves. They don't like it, and that's the moment they decide to kill him. Which is to say, at some level, Jesus was killed because of his views and his practice of money. 
So you're starting to get the picture. Do not steal is a little bit more layered at first glance than we might presuppose. Now, each week with these commandments, we have considered what is prohibited. We'll actually look at that next week. But also, what is required of us? When it says, do not steal, what is required of us? And what is required of us when it comes to not stealing is generosity. As I say in the sermon title, the opposite of stealing is generosity. Look with me in one of the verses I've printed for us. Ephesians 4.28, I think it says it most clearly here. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, let him labor so that, he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, generosity, as we will hopefully see this morning, is not just the opposite of stealing. It is actually what breaks the power of our thieving hearts. But generosity is a learned skill. It is a learned skill. The sermon title, the series title, again, is Learning to Live by Grace. And I really appreciate, this has not happened, hard. I've been in ministry 20 plus years, and it's only in the last year that a couple of people have come to me and said, Marshall, I want you to teach me how to give. Teach me how to be generous. You don't know how much that question means to me. That somebody would say, I need to learn. I want to know more about how to give. And so today, I'm going to do a bit of, it, a bit of that. It's going to be a bit more teaching than normal. I hope it's very practical um, on generosity and giving. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. This is a really interesting chance for you to overhear uh, God's people being spoken to by God from his word about their giving. But I need you to understand something if you're not a follower of Jesus, and that is this. Our giving does not earn us anything, okay? We are only giving as a response to what God has done for us. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, It's almost dangerous for you to be here because I don't want you to hear me saying, if you give like I'm going to talk about giving, then that will make you good in God's sight. It's just the opposite. God saves us. He makes us right with them. He changes our heart, and then we want to give, okay? That order is so important. So if you're here, great to overhear, but I wanted kind of the the warning. So, again, a little bit more practical and teaching-based than normal. But hopefully it will get to our hearts. I want to talk about the seven points. I promise they'll be quick. I know it's a long introduction. I preached forever last week. Uh, but that was on sex, and you liked that. So, um, <laughs> so seven things. The principle of generous giving, what to give to, to whom to give, when to give, how much to give, how to give, and then finally, circling back at some level, why to give. First, the principle of giving. Now, when it comes to money, and I, I am simplifying, I know I have a couple of economists in the room, I am simplifying a bit, but there are three basic views of money. The capitalist system teaches us that your money is your own. That's what the capitalist system, your money is your own. Socialism teaches you that your money belongs to someone else, namely the state. The Christian view is that your money, your things belong to God. Now, you can see this on almost any page of Scripture. Let me go over four different genres of Scripture. First, the Psalms. This was part of our call to worship this morning. Money belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest of mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, is mine. From the Old Testament narrative passages in 1 Chronicles chapter 29... The great King David, you know, in the ancient world, kings were extremely wealthy. They were considered to own everything in the country. 
They owned everything. And yet King David says this. He's the second king of Israel. He blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly, and he said, Blessed are you, O Lord God, Israel our father, forever and ever. For yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. He's acknowledging that everything, he's not the king that owns everything. God is the king who owns everything. Very famously in the story that Jesus tells in the teaching of Jesus, what we call the parable of the talents. Jesus says, basically, I give everybody just something to do something with. But the key of the story of the talents is that God is the one who gives the talent. He is the one who gives the treasure. He is the one who gives the possession and asks us to be a steward of it. But maybe most pithily, from the letters of Paul. I love this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He asks it rhetorically. And I ask it of you, what do you have, this is 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? I ask you that, what do you have that you did not receive? You see, God owns everything, and everything that you have that I have is a gift from him. This is why we're called to be stewards of what God has given us. We're called to be God's money managers, So I want you to do a little mental exercise, mental inventory. I want you to think of, I want you to think of your watch. Think of your watch. That's God's, putting God's name on it, right? Think of your home. What is a favorite item in your home? The old question, if everything was burning and you had to grab one thing, what is that one thing? Just imagine that that is God. It is God's. Imagine your home itself. It is God's. Imagine your Rolodex. Imagine, which is to say, all of your contacts, all of your relationships in business and socially. Imagine that it says God's over the top of your Rolodex. Imagine your resume, all the things you've accomplished, all the places you've worked, all the places you've been to school. Imagine that above your name it said, this is God's. He has given me the abilities to accomplish these things. And then I want you to think of, and most of you, you wouldn't admit it, but you know what your net worth is. I want you to think of that number right now. What's that? You got it? You got it? I got it? What's your net worth? God's over the top of it. Everything you have, including your net worth, which is all of it, is given of God. Is given of God. And friends, if you can get that, if you can get that one principle, you can take a nap. You can start watching the tournament, the Sweet 16. You can watch the golf, whatever you want. To, you can, if you get this point, you can pet, tune out the rest of the sermon. But the problem is we don't really get that. This is the intellectual key to generosity. Understand that God owns everything. And therefore, we are stewards. And one little aside of this. I said this a couple of weeks ago. or I don't know how. I said it a while ago. Somebody said how much it meant to them. So I'm going to say it again. You know, I say a lot. You've got to learn to love your story. Whatever story God has given you, whatever's happened in your life, it's the story that God has given you. That is also true for your money. You have to love your own financial story. The money that God has given, the the money that God has taken, maybe it's too much, maybe it's too little. It is the story that God has given you. We must learn to love our financial story. Okay? So the first principle, and really this is what undergirds this whole sermon, is this idea that everything is God's. And if you believe that, it will make you a generous person. Because you realize you have a fiduciary responsibility. 
You have a fiduciary responsibility for that money. All right, I'm going to pick up the pace from here. I know that's a long first point. You're like, if he's got seven points, we're going to be here until Sweet 16 is going to be over. Um, all right, second, uh, what to give to three, um, what, what to give, excuse me, three things. You give what you've been given by God, and God has given each of us time. He has given us talents, abilities, and he has given us treasure. Time, treasure, talent. Now, this morning, I'm mostly focusing on our treasure, our, our money, but time and talent are huge. And let me say this, especially on the North Shore, our time is frankly more valuable. Your time is more valuable to you than your money is. This is why in nine years being the pastor here, we've never had a financial problem. We have met every budget. We're going to meet our budget this year. We have met every budget in nine years, not even, without even really trying that hard, if we're honest. But you know what happened in nine years also? We've had an almost constant deficit of volunteers we've had almost constant volunteer shortage i love you but you're willing to give your money you're not as willing to give your time hey amen can i get an amen all right it's me too okay all right so think about your time and your talents you the thing is one of the things i love about pastoring you're so talented and you have so much to give, and it's so fun to see you using those talents for God and his kingdom in addition to, uh, in addition to your money. So what time, treasure, talent? And I want you to th- I'm talking mainly about money, but I also want you this week to be thinking about my, tr- uh, my time and my talent. How am I using those for God? He's given me those. Second, uh, third point, to whom do you give this? I, there's different ways to break this. I'm breaking into four categories real quickly. First, the church. Uh, We'll talk about this in a moment. Uh, Malachi talks about bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. The church, your family, let me read a scary verse to you. Uh, Anyone who, this is 1 Timothy 5, 8. Anyone who does not care for his family has denied the faith. Uh, Which is to say, if you have family members who are in need, finding a way to provide for them appropriately, especially for uh, aged parents, family. Third, I, I broke these last two, the Great Commission and the great commandment. Here's what I mean. The great commission is taking the work of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Those who gave to 638 Garrett, that's what they're doing. They're giving to the great commission. They're giving to the, so that the generations of students to come will hear about the good news of Jesus. The great commission, but also the great commandment. The great commission is going to all the world and tell people about Jesus. The great commandment is love the Lord your God your, uh, with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Giving to the great commandment means giving to God's people in need as well as to people in need around the world, whether it be needs of justice or, or, or mercy. So to whom do we give? To the church, to our families, to the great commission, to the work of spreading the word and growing the word, and to the great commandment of people in need. Okay, so we've seen what and to whom. When do we give? When do we give? Three things here. First, consi- when do we give? First, give consistently. Uh, giving is an act of worship. And one of the things that's hard about giving online, as so many, including my family, we give online, uh, is that it's hard to do it regularly. You do it to, I tend to do it in bigger blocks. But I think it's important for us to find ways to give consistently. Uh, second way to give, when to give, is when the Spirit prompts. You're sitting at dinner at, at a restaurant out, and, and God li- just lays it on your heart to give a big tip. Don't, res- don't resist that impulse. Give it. God says, give a good big give it. If God lays a ministry on your heart, he's pro- His Spirit is prompting you. Don't delay. Give to that ministry. But also, 
thirdly, not when to give just consistently and when the Spirit prompts, but also now. This is a book that I want to commend to you. I read it this week. It's called Leverage. Uh, it is by Kenneth Boa and Russ Crossan. Kenneth Boa is a theologian. Russ Crossan is a money manager. And it's the most practical book I've seen, especially, frankly, for high net worth givers. Uh, it talks about, for instance, the difference between and how to integrate income giving and balance sheet giving, cash flow giving and net worth giving, the role of foundations, the role of estate planning, and how to think about inheritance. This is a book that is designed for the North Shore, okay? Uh, leverage, okay? Because I realize that most of you think very strategically about your giving, as you should. And one of the things this book convinced me to think about is the importance of giving now, which is to say not just socking it away to a foundation that will give it all away when you die. And there's several reasons he gives, but one of them is simply for the joy of giving now, not holding off on the gift of giving now. So you give presently, we're called to give presently, promptly, by the Spirit, and consistently. How much, okay? This all, how much do you give? Two principles here. I know I'm teaching a lot this morning. Proportionally and sacrificially. Proportionally, which is to say a percentage. In the Old Testament, as you would know, maybe, maybe you don't, actually I shouldn't say you would know. The giving in the Old Testament, uh, the standard is tithing, which is 10%. 10% of income to God. Uh, this is what Malachi says about tithing. Mal it's in your bulletin. Look with me at Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I do not open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It's interesting, when the people are not giving the tithe, when they're not giving 10% to God, it does not say you're stingy. It actually says you are robbing me, right? These are fairly recent statistics on Christian giving. The average Christian gives 2.9% of their income. 72% of Christians give less than 2%. Less than 9% of Christians give 10%. Some give nothing. You just saw officers installed into our church, elders and a deacon. And I ask all the elders, all the deacons, and all the pastors, including myself, to commit to tithing as being a part of the leadership of our church, to giving 10% to 10% of something to something. I realize Gross, net, investment, it's complicated. But 10% of something to something, okay? Now, I want to say something real quick to the students. I realize I'm mostly high school students this morning. Um, I wish the college students were here. Uh, high school students, build into your budget from day one 10%, okay? It is, for some reason, I don't know why this is with the human heart, it is easier to start giving 5000 on a $50,000 a year job than it is to start years later and give 50000 on a $500,000 a year job. I don't know why it's easier, but it's easier to start when the, when the margins are a lot tighter. Build it into your budget from day one. Now, for the rest of us, if you're like, man, 10%, have you seen my bill with my kids? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It does seem like a lot. I get it. But here's my advice. Get a plan. It does, you, you might not be able to get there tomorrow, but have a plan 
to get there over time. Maybe it's by adding a percentage point a year. Maybe it's by adding half of a bonus or a COLA adjustment that you got. Maybe it's something just to grow that percentage until it gets to where you think it should be with you and God. But if you're like some of you in this room, 10% doesn't really impact you. Some of you are giving way beyond 10%. Well, hold on for the next point, sacrificial giving. Because I do believe that there's some in this room should be giving 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60%. The book that I just referenced, it tells the story that a guy, because of his balance sheet giving, because he gave off his balance sheet, he actually gave 100% of his income away every year, and his net worth did not go down. Some of you know the famous pastor and author Rick Warren. Rick Warren made a fortune uh, selling his book, The uh, Purpose Driven Life. And I read this somewhere. Who knows if it's actually true? But apparently Rick Warren, pastor, I mean, he had, he had money, but he tithed 90% of his income and lived off 10% of his income. Okay? Which brings us to sacrificial giving. Because the New Testament standard is actually beyond 10%. It is, as my uh, old uh, pastor, <laughs> Ligon Duncan, says, 10% is a good place to start. He says that tongue-in-cheek. But the New Testament standard is sacrificial giving. And why? Because New Testament giving is premised upon the ultimate self-giving, the giving of Jesus. He gave of himself and he gave all. And a great example of sacrificial giving is from the second book uh, of Corinthians, chapter 8. I love what the Apostle Paul does, Okay. The Apostle Paul is trying to raise, I'm going to try to do this geographically, the Apostle Paul is up in northern Greece, he's trying to raise money for the church at Jerusalem, and he's writing to the wealthy church down here of Corinth. And he, what he's writing to these people down here, he says, I want you to know, this, I'm quoting, this is 2 Corinthians, I want you to know, brothers in Corinth, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, up here. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, they gave beyond their means of their own accord. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What he's saying is these churches in Macedonia and northern Greece, they gave beyond their ability. They gave sacrificially to the church at Jerusalem. He's actually, I love the Apostle Paul. He's not afraid of comparing people. Uh, he's trying to get the, he basically is trying to make the Corinthians feel guilty. So you give proportionally and sacrificially. The question in giving about sacrifice is not so much what am I giving, but what am I giving up so that I can give. Now how do we give three ways real quickly? We give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. We give gratefully. This is counterintuitive. When you give, it does something in your heart and actually makes you realize just how much you have and you can be thankful. But then this is the thing I want to talk a little bit about, and that is to give with accountability. This is horrifying and terrifying to most of you. But somebody in your life beyond your spouse should know your financial situation. They should know how much you make. They should know how much you give so that they can hold you accountable to your giving. This has to be somebody that you trust eminently. It has to be somebody who you can humble yourself before. It is, I've done this, and it is quite humbling, okay? But it's amazing accountability. It's, 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 you know, there's several people for whom I hold them accountable with Internet pornography. I get a weekly report of their, what they see on their screen. And I, they've asked me to hold them accountable with their sexual lives. But hardly anybody ever does this for our financial lives. 
And yet it cuts so much closer to the bone, especially as you get older and make more and more money. A little bit of an aside for this on accountability is how we think about our money with our children. Because I do think, especially as your children get older, to talk to them about your giving, talk about them why you give, to whom you give, and even how much you give and how you made that decision. You can't do that with younger children, but as they get older, it's a way to model for them. Somebody in this congregation told me recently, you know, our our giving statements came out about a month ago. They took their giving statement and showed it to their teenager. Just to say, this is, this is what we do. This is because we prize this. This is important to us. And they're, what they're, they're modeling, they're discipling their child, right? So accountability. So we give accountably. We give gratefully. We give cheerfully. Well, finally, a couple of things on why giving. First, God tells us. I'll, I'll go real quick here. God commands it. <laughs> uh, laugh with me. God commands it. Um, Second, quite obviously, it meets the needs of others. It's a tangible way to worship God. It's one of the reasons I do wish that we could still pass the plate. I realize some of us give online, but actually putting a check on the plate every week is actually such a good, tangible way, a part of our worship service. There's spirit, fourthly, there's spiritual rewards for giving. Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But a couple more So that's the first four reasons to give. Fifth reason to give. Giving breaks the power of money. And it helps us prioritize the issues of life. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and following. Let me read. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richless provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation foundation for the future so they may take hold of the life, which is truly life. Look with me again at verse 17. Not to set their hope. Why give? To not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. I don't know why it is, but the wealthier we become, the stingier we become. There's something about financial prosperity that leads to earthly mindedness. Charles Spurgeon widely regarded as the greatest preacher of the 19th century, he says this. Think about this. It is a very serious thing to grow rich. Of all the temptations to which God's children are exposed, this is the worst, growing rich, because it is the one God's children do not dread. Anybody dread getting rich? Raise your hand. No hands. It is the one temptation they do not dread, and therefore it is the most subtle temptation. Friends, growing rich, is you want it, and therefore it is the most dangerous. And when we give, we start to break the power of that in our lives. That's why years ago, I've told this story before, I was in a particularly difficult time financially. Things were very tight, and I shared it with a pastor friend of mine. I was like, things are just tight. This is... And uh, this is long before I worked for this church. Y'all take care of me well. But, um, and um, this person said to me, he said, well, you need to give more money away. I was like, what? I said, I'm, I'm short money. He said, I'm telling you, you need to give more money away. And I said, okay. I, I took this person seriously. I appreciated them. And so I said, I'm going to pray about this. And my dad, who was here this morning, 
uh, had given me some um, he'd given me some stock in a company he worked for called Lehman Brothers. <laughs> um, and I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm, okay, I'm going to give some of that away. I can't remember how much it was. I, I, I'm going to give it away. And I did. I gave it away, even though it was, it was a time where it would have been better for me to cash those and pay for my lifestyle. I gave to a water fund in Africa, I remember. And you know what? Not long after that, that stock went to zero. But they cashed the check and they got the money. Thank God for that pastor's advice. It was, and in some small way, it was breaking the power of money in my life, which is a, a war that is not over. Another reason, and this is the first reason, and I'm getting to the last one. Uh, this is the, the first reason I gave is also a huge reason. The reason to give is the Lord's. It's not ours. But then the, second, the last two reasons to give. One, because God gave all in his son. Our assurance of pardon this week was 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. The ultimate reason for us to give is because Jesus gave himself. Which brings me to my last reason. The reason to give is that when you give, and when you give freely, joyfully, thankfully, you're actually, that's when you are most like God himself. <laughs> because that is the nature of God to love and to give of himself. And so why do we give? Because something has been given to us and given for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we give, we reflect the nature of the God who has given so much to us. And friends, that's why those folks gave to 638 Garrett. Because they understood that. It's the reason why so many of you give so sacrificially, so generously. So let's be a people. It's always been my conviction that this church should be a church that radically gives of their time, their treasure, and their talent. By God's grace, may it be so. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that all that we have is a gift. We thank you that you give us the privilege of participating with you and in some small measure giving back a portion of what you have given to us for the extension of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.